What's up, Bike Rumor fans? This is your host, Anna Schwinn, taking over the Bike Rumor podcast from Tyler Benedict one last time. That's right. This interview concludes our pre-show series on the builders coming to the Philadelphia Bike Expo, November 2nd and 3rd at the Pennsylvania Expo Center in the city of sisterly affection, Philadelphia, PA. Last episode, we spoke with the fabulous frame builder and fabricator, Danielle Schoen of Schoen Studio. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with the famous Megan Dean of Moth Attack. If Julianne Petalino is on the maximalist end of the ornamental spectrum, Megan is squarely on the other. The focus of her work is more in handling and ride feel than custom dropouts and general flair. And with that... I'd like to ask, audience, did you suddenly get the feeling that you were in the presence of greatness? Well, your sensors are correct. We are speaking to half of the critically acclaimed team that took bronze medal at the 2017 Elite Madison Track Nationals. I believe you celebrated the two-year anniversary of that glorious win just this week. Do you still have that that afterglow? <laughs> I still have those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I still have those numbers as well. So Megan Dean is a friend for full disclosure. Um, it, it's fair to say that everybody in this series knows each other through bike events since forever. And yeah, I mean, I think I was at 13 years of inner bike or something by the time it was dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's so a long time. <laughs> As with every uh, builder in the series so far, everybody comes at cycling in a different way. And in Megan's case, uh, Megan was a bike messenger and like kind of a big deal. How many scenes of premium rush were you in? <laughs> I didn't make it into the film, but I could probably identify all of the cast at one point. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I don't have any more awesome questions. Um, so, so you were a bike messenger. Talk about messengering. Perfect. Yeah. I was a messenger in LA. I, years are foggy, but probably 2005, 2006, 2007. When it actually was cool. When, when, before the <laughs> internet ruined everything. Yeah. I like never even got into food delivery. I feel like I kind of missed that, that boat. I never like had big messes in my bags. You know, it was just like heavy boxes and paper and court filings and angry court clerks and law clerks and all that Fond jazz. memories. <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. It was the best job I've ever quit. <laughs> you go from bike messengering and bike messengering back in the day um, before it got all commercialized. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So how do you get from a point where you're like delivering on bikes and to like investing in going to a frame building school to actually building bikes for customers? Um, you know, I went to frame building school before I was a messenger. It just took me Wait, that time what? to tool up. Yeah. I went to frame building school. Actually, I had just started working as a messenger when I like had to take the two weeks off for the class. So wow. I, yeah, I went almost straight from furniture and retail, like merchandising design and building to messengering and school. It was, it all happened kind of at the same time. Oh, that's a deep dive. 
Yeah. Uh, right into all of that, all of that, that culture all at once. Yeah. I had like a brief stint in like corporate retail that, that I don't really miss, but I learned how to build furniture and I did a lot of woodworking in that. And that was kind of, it was easy enough to build things out of wood. It seemed like metal would be like the next step in like the learning curve, maybe naturally. Nice. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I went the other way. Like I learned how to build out of metal before wood. Wood was very confusing to me and it kind of upset me because it was just so flexible. <laughs> you can't melt it together. I didn't like it. <laughs> no, but like, you know, you get sensitive as a machinist and your your level of precision is at a certain point. And if that's where you start, wood feels fast and loose yeah. and irresponsible. And it like, splinters easy and yeah yes it does yeah I'm it's very, very familiar very with rough <laughs> you go from building uh furniture commercially what like you were doing retail environments it was urban outfitters it was so they have like in-store people who build everything and so we would like mm. I, because i was in la we would flip old stores to redo the new stores and you know there'd be a flagship that would be this is what we're going to do this season. Um, and because I was in LA, uh, I would be in a room with like 12 different people who did the same job. So it was a lot of like work, you know, sharing and coordinating. And it was, it was good. It was like a really good learning environment. And it was a golden age for that kind of merchandising as well. Yeah. I don't imagine they still do that, honestly. Uh, so it's like, okay, there's this like library that's closing. So let's go dumpster dive all the books and get a bunch of gold leaf. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a lot scrappier than you would imagine with uh, the budgets that they really should be working with. So this is this is problematic for me because like I, I already know that you're way cooler than I am and you were... <laughs> I didn't know you were doing like that kind of like peak merchandising stuff during that period. So I'm humbled again and a little annoyed, but I'll bounce back. <laughs> it's, it's, oh my God. I, I was just in the right place at the right time when that job happened. <laughs> yeah, but like four times over for like frame building all and, of my life. and <laughs> messaging and, and all of that. All at like, oh, I gave up my job at like, you know, I'm, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. I walked away Editing. from that job yeah. to ride my bike from Seattle to San Francisco because they wouldn't give me the days off. So I quit. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you go to frame building school then? Like, why was that a thing you wanted to do? Um, I, I had been like commuting when I first moved to LA, I, I had, you know, gone through the heartbreak of having bikes stolen in LA. And then I had someone give me an old Schwinn conversion and I, it did not fit me. <laughs> it was like this monster ass bike. Right. Yeah. No, it was like not meant to be. <laughs> and I ended, I eventually just ended up giving that frame to someone who single speeded it, fortunately. But I kind of went down this rabbit hole of like having a hard time getting bikes to fit me. Uh, a friend who worked in a shop helped me like try and cobble some stuff together. But I have such a long inseam and short torso that it was still kind of lost on people. I too am a T-Rex. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and it was just, a uh, oh, you should go custom. I had some friends who had built frames at different schools at kind of gave me the idea and I started researching because I had gone down like the LA track bike nerdery um, Yamaguchi's where I landed 
it was a different age. Uh, velodrome high fashion was right. the fashion of the day. Yeah, um, and it was before Kieran frames really hit big in the states. Like they, no one had like opened a like solid line on importing them yet. They were just like a trickle with like people who had really cool stuff. So it was as easy and affordable for me to go to a frame building school as it was to like try and track down like, you know, really cool bikes from other countries. I had some friends in LA who were both interested in frame building and we had kind of talked about we could go to this class and then come back to LA and like figure out a workspace together. Little did we know that was going to be so much harder than we had bargained for. Um, (laughs) Even, you know, like I had no budget, but one of my friends like had a real adult job and could have, you know, afforded more than the other two of us could have. But even still, space is so limited in big cities like that. Wait, so did you all go to frame building school together at the same time? Yep. It was awesome. We made up our entire class. That sounds like fun. It was amazing. That sounds like a way to do it. Yeah. If I... if you feel like you learned less or more than you would have with strangers? Probably more because it was less inhibited and like, you know, poking into what other people were doing. And we all built very different bikes. There were, I think, two lugged bikes and one fillet braised in the class, but it was like a track and like, believe a like street single speed and then like a road bike. Like it was not, we didn't all just like go in and build track bikes. Uh, a track bike. one? No, oh, I actually track- lugged a track bike. What? Yeah. Your ankle? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> First bike, <laughs> lugged track bike. <laughs> yeah, with like a, a T-Rex like frame shape. Yeah, it like, actually fits really well. I mean, it's it's great. It is very aggressive. Your historic 2017 run? Uh, no, that's a track bike I later built um, before 2011 NABs because I had changed my riding style a lot. I started out like thinking I was going to sprint on the track and then kind of realized I don't have the time. I mean, especially now. I'm not even riding on the track, but at the time, like sprint workouts were so long that I was getting more riding in on the road. And so I wanted to build a new track bike that would suit more towards like the Omnium style as it was coming around. You're one of a couple builders who gets really, really nerdy about track geometry. And (laughs) uh, so you and two of your friends are at the Yamaguchi Frame Building School. Can you talk about what that style of education is? Why was that the kind of education you wanted? And what was really important coming out of it? You know, like I I only had one review of UBI to go on at the point. A friend of mine that had gone was like, yeah, I wish we had had a smaller class and I'd been more hands on. Like I got more help than I thought I was going to. And, you know, 15 years ago, I don't really know what their classes were like. I did know, like as a track nerd, that the Yamaguchi class would be only us. The pricing was basically the same. A drive from L.A. to Rifle is like not all that difficult the western slope of Colorado is damn cheap. So it was a it was a pretty easy pick um in that way. And then 2006 is when we went. That era of like learning about track track bikes, it was just like starstruck going to like hang out with Yamaguchi at that point. Pretty nerdy. Yeah. Like pretty, <laughs> pretty nerd perspective. Yeah. Living in LA for 10 years and not giving a shit about celebrities. 
on the street and then you know like i meet people like yamaguchi or we went to a screening of lael wilcox's film like earlier this week and i was like nerding out on her you know like <laughs> it's it's all very obscure <laughs> yeah it, it it is it is very weird to be on that level uh yeah. i empathize entirely <laughs> i don't know i well you know i keep talking about trying to like get in touch with him but like i I don't have the guts to do it. Like he's he's out of my pay grade as a cool bike dude. He he's like hard to get in touch with too. I live an hour from him and I don't see him, you know? <laughs> I don't feel like I can just like go drop in and say hi. <laughs> I want to imagine him like up some like mountain path that you have to like climb and then his shop <laughs> is at the top of it. He yeah, amazing and the wi-fi is amazing it's a ton of work to get to him <laughs> no he's just super focused on work and like just doesn't take breaks from that like there's no exceptions it feels like because <laughs> if i have like reached out and been like hey how's it going i'm in the area <laughs> it'll be like well i have this tiny window <laughs> So you were geeking out at his class. Like, what did you what did you get out of it? I mean, aside from being extremely starstruck, we hit a really like great period where, um, you know, all all of us in the class, you know, like, you know, we're friends, knew each other. We were staying, you know, basically on top of around the corner from his shop. His wife was the one who told me I was the first woman through his class. There was another woman who came through wow. in the class after me who I've actually I, I know. Um she had just like happened to sign up like right behind us and they knew it. But um, yeah, Yamaguchi Koichi's uh, wife, Barbara was uh, like super friendly. So we, I mean, we spent 4th of July with them, like grilling at their house and stuff. Um, it was a really amazing immersive experience because if you want to like nerd out about bikes, he will just like keep talking about them and basically Ooh. has a museum. <laughs> That's so cool. So um, Yamaguchi's class is very manual. Um, talk about that because I know that certain other types of education, you know, it's like introducing you to machinery, talking to Danielle, you know, she learned definitely with like a heavy machining component, different situation with this particular school. And how did that set you up for later success? <laughs> it was pretty amazing to like walk into a garage that is set up with tools and then like ignore most of them. He showed us a <laughs> handful of like what the machines he had did but then we didn't use them <laughs> or we were like a very limited use we did everything by hand i the old mitering program that everyone used that i haven't even seen um in ages fortunately it, it is literally like printing out miters you wrap it around the tubes mark it like cut file and that's how i built every frame for the first eight years, nine years, 10, I'm at 10 years of like really having tools and building now up until I moved here in what, 2017, early 2017. Mm -hmm. That's how I did everything. So it's like oh tin, snip, tin snips and files and a hacksaw. So that vertical mill is kind of a big deal. I like am still intimidated by it because it's so efficient. <laughs> it's amazing. Like going from every miter and I even got you know hand mitering down to like a very quick process but it's still like night and day how much faster I can miter a tube set and the wear and tear on my body is so significantly less oh I'm so glad to hear that yeah I was worried for a minute still Almost worried 
<laughs> Fair. <laughs> so right. Wondering yeah, when you're going to turn on TIG welder of yours. <laughs> <laughs> it's been on, but not in in a bike sense. <laughs> Did you go to the class with the desire to build bikes? Did you have like a brand in mind? How did you start to get set up as an actual frame builder from building, you know, from builder school to like starting a brand and actually starting to sell to strangers? I mean, we all thought we would go ahead and build frames. And we kind of, you know, had this idea that if we built together or bought tools together, that we could offset that cost. But the reality kind of became that like, I was in downtown LA-ish area, Koreatown really, and um, one of the guys was in Long Beach and the other was in Pasadena, and that's basically, <laughs> we might as well have been worlds away um, <laughs> in LA terms, yeah, especially no joke. Long Beach and I both only used bikes for transportation, so so there oh, wasn't no. a whole No, no, lot. no. Yeah. <laughs> And, and our friend in Pasadena uh, had a very like adult professional job and like still has a very adult professional job. And he ended up making good decisions and really doesn't need to worry about work at this point in his life. So <laughs> um, oh, nice for him. Yeah, he, he chose correctly. <laughs> One of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, that was genius. Why? Oh, yeah, I was busy messing with bikes. That's why I didn't think of anything like that. <laughs> but no, it was great. I, I had, you know, house full of people that I lived with who were all very bikey and all super supportive of like figuring it out. But we did live in an apartment in Koreatown. So that was kind of a challenge of like figuring out tools. But I was like buying files and stuff like here and there. And I got like the cutest tiniest little like oxyacetylene torch that I had in our laundry room <laughs> that connected the outside it was kind of a shared space between the other apartments but it was like no one did anything with it it was just like a weird patch of concrete no I had a friend at the time in LA who had like built in a kitchen so <laughs> that's how like space tight LA is but the the Ooh. alignment table I have now actually came from a friend who worked in a shop and had kind of gone down the road of like tinkering with frame building. He lived in this really cool house where they had a metalworking shop downstairs and like a living space upstairs. And one of his roommates had built bikes previously. He had welded for seven, like many, many, many years ago. And oh, cool. Yeah. And so he kind of had like a little bit of knowledge. So he picked up what he could from there and then bought, you know, some like secondhand tools. And so the first frame that I built out of class was in that shop with a little bit of like emailing Yamaguchi and being like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I already forgot. And, you know, not being very certain of yourself when someone else is going to ride a bike that you're building. <laughs> as far as yeah. I know, it's still on the road. <laughs> wow. So your second bike was for someone else. Talk about the difference between building a bike in class versus building one alone. That's the hardest bike you ever have to build. Yeah, it was terrifying. I think if I hadn't had someone with me who was like, don't oh, do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I like I, I had someone in the shop that like I could ask questions of who had done a little bit more than I had. And that helped. I mean, it was terrifying, especially, uh, of course, it wasn't a lugged bike. It was I built a by lamb bike for my second bike after never having what? fillet braised without just like my seat stays or whatever on my track bike. Oh, my um, God. Why? So uh, like, like all the all the way around by lamb or 
how by lamb? I'm pretty sure the bottom bracket was lugged and then everything else was by lamb. I don't know because that's how I do things. (laughs) How hard could it be is my answer way too often. (laughs) (laughs) You went from building like a silver braised lugged bike with Yamaguchi and then your second bike apart from that is a completely different process requiring a lot of extra handiwork like an an unnecessary amount by by several degrees yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's that's an interesting decision (laughs) uh yeah I don't know if it was so much a decision as like the the (laughs) person who had the bike um and you know it was like I think I might have even bought tubes or we had just like tubes in the shop that my friend had and that you that you were required to use. Well, that he was that it was like, oh, we can use these. It'll be you know, it'll be fine. Um, It was something I wouldn't repeat now with someone at the time. It seemed like, oh, here, let's build this bike and then it'll be fine. I don't know why it was such a cavalier feel because now I'm like paranoid about things. So (laughs) so what? is a moth attack (laughs) the name kind of came out of a bad granola moth attacked experience um our kitchen got like super overrun by grain moths and the joke (laughs) was that there was a moth attack and then there was like a joke about it being a band but like i'm so untalented musically and can you only imagine like if i had a microphone in my hands in front of a crowd how awful that would be I mean, I'd enjoy it. Continue. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The joke like kind of just stuck because naming a frame building company as a woman with the last name of Dean and they're already being Dean Titanium um, out in the world. It's a weird product to name. Like everyone for a long time went by name and that's cool. Like it was a thing. It's just different when you're addressed as like, dear Mr. Dean all the time. (laughs) didn't yes <laughs> wasn't what i wanted to go with anyway jokes just kind of become serious in my life so regularly <laughs> um, i thought it was like a spider-man situation myself <laughs> i'm not disappointed but maybe a little let down i still get moths all over my life so it's not entirely yeah, unrelated I, I just can't ever really get rid of them no, they are like, they're pre- super prevalent in my life. My my mom's story is that my grandmother, when she died, said she was coming back as a moth. So I don't, you know, not really in my belief system, but it's cool. It was a weird situation. You didn't want to go by your name. It didn't make sense to go by your name because there's already a Dean Titanium <laughs> already, out there. Already taken. <laughs> and jokes become real. So you you tool up, you're in LA, you have Moth Attack as a brand because it's hilarious. And you're like, I'm youthful. I can change this later if I want. You right. never do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't um, think it was going to be permanent, but it is. So It is. It's, and very serious now. You've brought this this facet of seriousness to it <laughs> because you're such a serious big deal frame builder. But And one of the, one of the reasons why is because of your affiliation with messenger culture in LA, a lot of your customers are or have been bike messengers. Can you talk about how how that relationship works? 
you know, when you're like, you're on like your bike, I just need people to test bikes like really hard. I, it, it is a really good like test subject is someone that like rides their bike all day, every day and in like the worst conditions. And incidentally, messengers have been the like a messenger has been the only person who's ever like broken bikes. And it's been mostly elements that have like kind of taken things down because steel doesn't like Chicago's roads. Messengers travel a lot. The community is like worldwide, but still so small. You know, I haven't messengered in so many years, but I'm still in touch with people who are still on the road. Like, it's still a job I love and miss. It's if I could live in a place that was as small as where I do now and still work on my bike, I would for sure, even just on the side. As we've moved on into other jobs, careers, like life changes, small towns, whatever, like so many of us still keep in touch and in contact with that life. And it really just has like led to different kinds of riding for everyone. It doesn't hurt, I guess. There was a big track messenger overlap for a number of years there. So messengering was how I got into track racing. You were a messenger in LA for like, what, five years? I think it was three. Three years. But the important one. Yeah, no, I eventually um, working as as a messenger and like trying to build frames was like so hard for me to balance with like the rest of everything going on. Like I couldn't make enough money and like try and build bikes. Uh, So I was trying to I was trying to figure out a better answer to. And I felt like Danielle for like the past year has been doing that. She's been she took like a nine to five messenger job. And then like was building bikes after school, which is like you work a nine to five and suddenly that seems really appealing for a while. Yeah. yeah. Being a frame builder and like balancing anything else is hard anyway, but (laughs) being a messenger and like building bikes just was not, it wasn't working for me at the time. I think like going back now, like it would have been fine if I had known, but I don't know. LA is such a distracting place anyway. I felt like I needed to make more money in less time as like the internet was becoming a thing at that point. Like we were going from big messenger money to like what people are probably making now at best, where it's like back to being like a job where you're constantly struggling. Once you can email document packages across town. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as judges started accepting that, it was like, it was dead. (laughs) Yeah. The money dried dried up real hard in LA and it's never Mm -hmm. like, I was fortunate in that I worked for a company where we made a pretty solid commission. It's like never been a super high paying messenger city. What were you building really early on? My perception is you were very track focused. Very track focused. Obviously. Yeah. Early bikes were very track between street and track racing. Uh, You know, at one point I like traded coaching on the track for a a track bike, which ended up being like kind of a cool trade. It was however I could get bikes, you know, out onto the street and with people like who could give me feedback um as most as as much as possible you know i built i built a track bike for someone i raced madisons with i didn't really start building much outside of like track and some road bikes until the cross team really is what set that off your world famous moth attack cross team like talk about that because you're not like a high production frame builder and you invested in this big cool team it put you on the map but also uh it was just a really cool thing to do for the community and it got people on really rad bikes one of the women on the team had one of my track bikes and we had been friends for some time uh christina peck was a messenger and i that's how i knew her 
And that's how they introduced me to the rest of the team. They had a sponsor idea worked out. It was going to be like going in a totally different direction. And then it just kind of fizzled the interest on on both sides. Like, I don't really know the details. It doesn't matter. They approached me and asked if there was any chance that I would be able to build that many bikes. Um, And it was like April or May or something by that point, if if I would be able to get bikes done and turned around before cross season. And I think like San Francisco cross at that time was starting in October sometime. And I had just moved for the third time <laughs> that year. No, I, I guess Where it was were probably. You? Were you in like, like I was in Las Vegas. Vegas? Yeah, I was in Vegas. So I grew up in Las Vegas. I left oh, as okay. soon as I could. <laughs> uh, and, the, and then when I was, Coming to grips with needing to leave LA, um, I realized that I couldn't really do it in one straight shot. Uh, I had kind of, I was just so overextended emotionally and financially and, you know, physically that I didn't know exactly where I was going to go from LA, but I couldn't stay anymore. So Mm -hmm. I called my mom one day and was just like, I, I need a break. I need to come home or something. And she was like, just get here. We'll figure it out. And it ended up being a really amazing, like six month time period where I left LA. I was able to move back to Vegas. Um, I grew up on this like amazing property with this like little ranch house, but a 1500 square foot shop in the backyard. Um, nice of my dad's. And so I was able to like clean out area there and just like set back up immediately. I was like up and running again in no time. That's amazing. It was really amazing. And I only stayed for six months at that time in 2013 and moved to Boulder, Colorado. And, um, I thought I was setting up shop somewhere really quickly. And then my stuff ended up sitting in uh, storage for like six weeks or something until I ended up renting storage space with some friends and moving into that. And it was like a weird upstairs, (laughs) like little shop. It was like 700 square feet and they were screen printing in it. And I was trying to build frames in it and we made it work. I couldn't have had any more tools than I did. And so when I, I moved back to Vegas after eight months in Boulder, um, when my dad passed away and it just felt wrong being so far away. Um, so I felt like I had, I had to go back and it, it ended up being great because it was, like where my family, like my mom and I and my sister and I kind of like rebonded and, you know, everyone got to be close in their adult lives. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And for all like weird, terrible places, like Vegas has a lot of like character and uniqueness to it. That's like really charming. Um, It's just very deep under the surface. (laughs) You just gotta dig real hard for it you somehow in moving shops over and over and over again you support this team on the west coast why was it important for you to do that as a small brand like why did you see the importance of doing it like because it's it's a big burden for a small builder to kick out what like six eight bikes it was six yeah yeah it was a lot of bikes for me at the time especially and You know, it was people I really liked. Um, I went and had a meeting with them and we kind of discussed like what their goals were. 
uh, what their plan was, you know, their other sponsors that I was able to meet, you know, it was a priority of going out racing, but like making sure it was fun. It wasn't too serious, which is clearly a theme. I also was very curious what I could do building six bikes at the same time with like all same tube sets, but very similar, like numbers. Like there were basically like two very small bikes, two kind of small bikes and two more medium bikes. Yeah. They did have some like differing numbers between them, but they was very slight, like very small tweaks to the jig, but then the back ends were all the same. That was super helpful. I wish at that time I had a mill. <laughs> um, it it would have definitely uh, helped out there. Those bikes are kind of where I feel like I figured out a lot of things. You know, repeating processes back to back is so important. So it was really nice to like feel like I could dial in some of my processes a little bit more. And some of it was just like, I think I can make this happen. I, you know, was at the lowest overhead of my life. Um, so I could spend more time on just bikes and not worrying about anything else. And I wasn't as worried about like making money on the next bike for a brief moment. So I, I, it worked. It's been interesting to watch how the bikes you've built have changed over the years because there was a really early track focus and then you've just gotten fatter and fatter and fatter over time. So Um, fat. (laughs) So fat. You you built that Grinduro bike that I've seen all over the place. That's super cool. We could talk about that, but what I really want to talk about is the fact that for Philly, you're like, you know what? I'm going to build a full suspension uh, frame. <laughs> and that's yeah. going to be a reasonable thing for me to do. Uh, I'm going to have it done in time. I'm going to ride it a lot after the fact. Talk about like what what you're you're trying to accomplish with this. How how do you even get into design? Because I believe this is your first full yeah. suspension frame. Yes, very much. Cool. Um, um. <laughs> and if the last week is any indication, it's not even the last necessarily. I like surprised myself by being like, "Oh, I could do this on another bike." <laughs> I was like, "Oh no, I already said it." <laughs> Did you ever uh-huh. see yourself as, as like when you started out, you'd be like, you know what? And I'm going to I am going to span the the full spectrum of, of cycling. And no. and one day I will reach. No, I will. Reach, <laughs> no, you didn't see Moth if, Attack taking this direction. If you ask anyone who's asked me to build them a mountain bike in the last 10 years, you would get the same answer from everyone. I don't ride them. There's no way I'm building one. Um, (laughs) Because, I mean, I think some of what made my track bikes and then road and cross, like, specific to people's style of riding is that they're all bikes that I got to know. When you talk about the design of bikes, you know, like, you know, Everybody else coming to Philly this year does a lot of ornament and you just don't, you know, you're very like much about the style of riding and making the style of riding and the fit of the bike, you know, work for the rider. So just just so everybody knows the reason why we're not talking about um, cat lugs on this particular (laughs) interview is because there are none. Um, If there were, we would be discussing. (laughs) <laughs> because Jackie's so cool. <laughs> um, yeah, no kidding. Anyway, 
No, it's, it, it is. And I think it's some of it comes from like, I've ridden a lot of different things and I've like ridden the wrong bike at the wrong time, but I've also ridden the right bike at the right time. And it's super rewarding. You know, I have two different track bikes that serve very different purposes, but I don't think most people would notice the geometry differences if you were just like looking at them side by side because they clearly fit the same person. But with mountain bikes, I I had a disastrous first mountain bike ride in LA many, many years ago. I basically never wanted to touch one again. I, off a cliff, like caught by bushes. It was oh. awful. I was with people who were like so much better than I am, um, like started their own mountain bike brand. Cool. And I, yeah. <laughs> so over my Good head. Job. Yeah. And so I, I didn't touch mountain bikes for a while. And then I ended up with a second mountain bike because basically I was on a very poorly fit first mountain bike and it wasn't the whole problem, but it definitely wasn't a good introduction. And then I got another bike that was also very poorly fit, but in the opposite direction. And I didn't have any major disasters. I, I really, I like couldn't find the right mountain bike and I really didn't want to try that hard. I didn't really like riding in LA. It was all like fire roads, which seems like I'm just going to ride my road bike or it's like super technical mountain bike trails that, that you're not going to do. <laughs> yeah. That only, the only like introduction I had to it was with people who were like so much better as I've now learned taking people less experienced than I am mountain biking. Like what you think is easy is not easy when someone has a panic attack every time there's a little bit of exposure. Cause that's basically where I was at. And then I moved to the mountains in Colorado <laughs> And then I started mountain biking. <laughs> it's what you do out there. It was really hard to live here for the first like eight months or something without a mountain bike. I didn't think I was missing out. And then now husband and I went and rode uh, White Rim and Canyonlands National Park. And I rode my fat bike, which I had before a mountain bike, a steel fat bike that I got after helping out another small company larger than me, but smaller, smaller than most company with some like <laughs> photo stuff. Um, they like hooked me up and it's steel. So I was able to braze on a bunch of mounts for like, I did fork mounts for like the anything cages, uh, some other like cable routing. Cause it came as a single speed. It's, I torched the paint. I don't know. We bike packed white rim. It's a hundred mile four by four road. I was so stoked, but so miserable with my bike that it was like, if I had a mountain bike, this would be a lot less miserable because my bike would weigh 30 pounds less. Literally. <laughs> uh, we actually didn't answer the question. We've gotten the story. You're okay with mountain bikes now. Yeah. Good job. Took, um, took me a long time. <laughs> it took you a long time. And then you build this mountain bike for yourself for Grinduro it's, you know, like, oh, Megan Dean's got a new bike. Oh, it's the Grinduro bike. Oh, it's the Moth Attack Grinduro bike all over the internet. And I'm like, Wait. And it's a mountain bike. <laughs> yeah, but the thing the thing is, is that you, you told me you were going to do this full suspension bike before I saw that one oh. popping up. And I'm like, I'm like, I know that one got done at the 11th hour, which means that full suspension bike has not been started. And I'm Precursor. like, I'm like, well, yeah, we'll see. All right. So why do this? Why? Um, why? 
<laughs> so just like every other bike, um, I did have a hard time. My first mountain bike was a hardtail. Love it. I live in an area where there's like a very specific mountain bike that everyone kind of loves here. And it's all like a big cross country light trail bike, full suspension. Do you love and it too? Or do you love something else just to be contrarian? And um, cool? I, you know, it's funny. I like now that I have moved over to full suspension, I, I like do love it, but Having a hardtail that I really like um, has been super fun to like kind of reconnect with that because I did break up with my old hardtail for a while after getting a full suspension bike. And so I had this full suspension, like older style geometry bike that I got about a year ago, just like picked up on Craigslist for a really good deal. We're down the street from Moab pretty much. Uh, started riding more there. My hands have such a hard time with rough stuff now uh, that having like the uh -huh. extra squish is really, really beneficial for like the length of rides that I can do. And like, still come home and like work but then I started nerding out on suspension <laughs> and like getting really like <laughs> deep dives into like what I liked about bikes as I started getting like more competent and faster and like started liking going downhill rather than dreading them um I was very quickly starting to outride the bike it was becoming a super frustrating thing I'd like go out for rides with people and I would like get into these really weird situations where the head tube angle was so aggressive and the seat tube angle was so slack that I was like not having any fun climbing or descending. So I was having a really hard time with the bike. Um, knowing it's like, if I didn't know what was wrong with it, it would have probably been fine. But because I knew exactly what was wrong with it, I wanted to fix it. Uh, <laughs> so I have this friend um, who came out to ride here this just this past April and he's old bike industry guy, went to work for a new, not a new company, but went to a new job um, at a mountain bike based brand. And I was riding one of their demo bikes and like super loving it. And at the same time, um, we're name dropping uh, his Niner demo bikes. And then uh, we were talking about uh, my local shop here, who I absolutely love uh, is an Ibis dealer. And they had just released the made in us Ripley's, which is basically yeah. the bike that people ride here and they're designed by a woman. And of course I can't ride a small. So they're building smalls in the States and medium, large, extra large are all overseas. I super loved that. I follow their designer on Instagram. Like she's super cool. Uh, she does really smart Roxy. stuff. Yeah, Roxy. Yeah, she does super cool stuff. She's really smart, killing this like made in US carbon thing. And so I like absolutely am like dying. Like I got to buy one of these bikes. I cannot afford it. My friend who's at Niner is like, yeah, super cool bike. Like if you can get one, awesome. But you know what you should do? You should just build one. And I was like, dude, no, I don't need to build a full suspension bike. Like I don't know where to start. It's so much like more work. Over the course of like just a couple hour ride, he like goaded me into like thinking about it even. And so here we are where I actually bought one of the bikes that I demoed because I do really like it, but it's kind of not one bike to rule them all. It's like a very good bike to have. There's a missing bike and that's what I'm building. <laughs> So it's, it is single pivot. I started out looking at more complicated suspension designs 
everyone has really strong opinions about different suspension and what makes, you know, good suspension. I've read so much about suspension design and I like really what I came down to was like, you know, like everything else, everyone just like has some preference. And until I start building them and riding them, I don't know what the effect is um, necessarily going to be between the suspension and the material and the geometry. So I decided that like, if I start very reasonable and as like simple as possible rather than overcomplicating it like I was trying to. I just like stripped it down. So it's just single pivot, which means that there is a pivot behind the bottom bracket, but that's it. There's not a second pivot uh, before the axle. My suspension, the bottom is connected between the down tube and the seat tube. So I actually can fit a small frame bag in the frame and bottle cage. Um, or one or the other rather. Um, and then just linkage between the top of the rear shock at the seat tube and the seat stays. It is like as simple as suspension can be. And I like don't think it'll suffer for it. <laughs> like <laughs> Are you gonna be able to ride it before you get to the show? Uh um, how's fabricating going? Better than I thought. I like so I <laughs> you know, it's like a, it's a lot of things to figure out. And I was like being really stubborn about like, I'm going to make everything because that's what you should do when you do most things by hand. But (laughs) I've talked to a couple people who have built steel full suspension bikes and reached out a little bit and kind of crowdsourced, like most specifically, uh, Monet because he built like the coolest, weirdest full suspension bike out of steel in the last, like, you know, however long. There are a couple of folks doing it right now. It's yeah. it's pretty cool. I, I love the bits that people make for it. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, there's so many ways to get there, which for me is not, doesn't make it easier. It actually just makes it harder because I always want to make sure it's like the right way to do it. But this is totally new territory. My first bike. Well, I still have my first bike, but you know, like the first time doing something, it's not always going to be perfect. So if this isn't perfect, like. I'm okay with that now. <laughs> if if I need to build another one, that's fine. You know, it's like a learning process for sure, but we're definitely in rideable territory. <laughs> we'll just see how long. <laughs> well, I'm stoked to see how that turns out. You've been somebody who's been a leader within a lot of folks look up to you among women in particular. You're one of a couple frame builders out there that people consistently point to and have consistently pointed to for the last 10 years, you know? So yeah, you've, you've been a point of contact for a lot of people getting into frame building. You're somebody who cares very deeply about encouraging the diversification of frame building from where <laughs> it is right now. The last interview, Danielle talked a lot about why it's important and why inclusivity is important and just the impact of going into spaces where you're the only person who's different in this very specific way. Talking about the impact of that, something that I'd really like you to speak to as somebody who's been this touch point for all of these other frame builders or just people who are coming at the craft from a more marginalized position, what can frame builders out there do? What can community members within frame building infrastructure do to facilitate the success of new builders? 
who don't represent, Danielle put it, the status quo. Please speak articulately about this this area. What can people do to help? Why is help important? And what type of help is the most impactful? And when is it important to help? Thinking back on how much how much help I have had and like the different ways that it's come in. I had help with shop space very early on and I don't know like how much longer it would have taken for bike two to have like even come out at that point if I hadn't had that because space is so difficult to come by for a lot of people. It's expensive. Tools are expensive. And that's kind of where I did narrow down a bare minimum frame building like tool set, you know, for fillet brazing or lugging where like I can build a bike with hacksaw files, like preferably like some tin snips or something, you know, a torch. It's like possible to do it that way. I wouldn't like intentionally send people down that road, but it's like kind of a nice skill to have. Being able to strip it down to that, I think makes it a lot less intimidating, especially for as someone who appreciates their mill so much, but didn't start (laughs) with it and is still intimidated by it because tools and things that you know, move are still intimidating. It like lowers the barrier to entry, which is already so financial, financially like restrictive. It's an intimidating group of people because frame builders are introverted and so bad at like reaching out. Um, I think beyond their own shop, everyone's hustling all the time. And I've been very fortunate to like make connections along the way with people who are so talented. Most of the builders that are at Philly have like been very supportive of me um and it's one of the reasons why i love the show and they're all they're all men they're all just like middle-aged white men and they're they have all been so great to me it it did take some sticking around for them to like even know who i was and so i think things like bike shows are so intimidating to like throw down a thousand dollars or more or you know more or less and show up with a completed booth like none of us want to show up half-assed and then you need to bring a bike that you feel like you want to show off. You have to put the paint on it or the parts. Parts are so expensive when you're trying to break everything down on multiple bikes. It's a reason why a lot of us don't generally do a lot of shows. You know, I've done Philly twice and I had to take a break even I was sharing booths and I still had to take a break from it because the time away from the shop, the time away from like actually making money and putting it work into things that are paying you directly is really hard. And then you go and be on display as like the one person in the room who sticks out in that situation. It's like really comforting to know that you have your peers on your side because Philly is such a supportive environment and all of those builders have been so great, but it is sometimes the public doesn't get that. Sometimes you get proposed to (laughs) some, sometimes people think that the kid sitting in your booth is your kid because you're a woman in a booth at a bike show, you know? Thing, things like that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, both of those things wow. have happened. <laughs> Not at Philly. Um, which which I do feel like the show does set the tone for how the public is receiving the exhibitors too, which well, is one of the... How do you think the, they do that? How can these shows be better? Philly, in, in my two years there, I have seen more women on the show floor at Philly than any other bike show I've ever been to. There's exhibitors, That's there's true. women working and running the show. There's women just like as attendees, like throughout the show, there's a women's 
panel every year in some capacity. There's women reflected on all of the panels in some capacity. Like it's just started off as a more like even footing from like day one that I think that's that's what the people coming to the show expect. And, and I think it just draws a different crowd in. Or it makes people shut up when they have stupid things to say. I'm not really sure how much of that factors in, but <laughs> when you don't feel like your opinion's going to be well received, I think I think you'll keep it to yourself a little bit more. You know, that's a really good way of putting that. People often give feedback like, "Well, what if the only reason this brand is behaving itself is because they're worried that a bunch of women are going to be like mad yeah. and and loud about it?" And I'm like. Hey, yeah. I really don't care what that restraint <laughs> looks like. I just care that that it, whatever right. it is, well, it's even effective. even if that's the reason that they're not doing stupid things, it means they're at least thinking about it. Because there's still companies that are doing stupid things, which means they aren't even smart enough to realize that they're being assholes. Like, <laughs> so who cares? <laughs> like, as long as they're not putting out terrible content. <sighs> yeah, I don't. I don't really care why, because if companies are putting out terrible content, people are seeing it and thinking that it's okay just by seeing that. They're like, well, see, they did it. It's just prop- self-propagating. Uh, yeah. Uh, vicious cycle. <laughs> I've been trying to interview you for for years, and I did an interview with you at Philly like three years ago, and it was so completely unusable because you wouldn't talk about I- your own bikes look at all you're like there it is (laughs) yeah that sounds about right and I'm like I'm like yeah who's that for and you're like it's got a sick paint job and it's a bike messenger and I'm like cool tell me about designing for bike messengers (laughs) and you're like I don't know like I build him a bike and I'm like you're like this is terrible this is terrible Megan Dean is the worst, worst interviewee I've ever had yeah no it's (laughs) it's hard to talk (laughs) about yourself yeah. Yeah, you can't talk you literally can't talk about it. It's yourself. really hard for me to talk about myself at bike shows when I'm exhausted about like from talking about myself. <laughs> it's just exacerbated in that situation <laughs> for sure. Megan Dean, talk about your bike philosophy. What the <laughs> hell do you build and why do you build it? Put it into words. Consecutive words. You know, I like I like building bikes that are very utilitarian, very purposeful. I want bikes to fit well. I want them to do the job that they're supposed to do. Preferably, they also look nice. I'm very fortunate that I get to work with a painter who I adore and love and gets to do really cool stuff on bikes as often and as your I can painter let him. Black Magic, Rudy, Rudy Young at Black Magic. Um, Who's delightful. Truly the most amazing painter. <laughs> I've dealt with every everyone prior to Rudy starting. There are some up-and-comers who I hear great things about. I'm sure they're fantastic. I'll probably never know. Um, <laughs> like, I, ad- <laughs> I adore working with someone who I care about as a friend. You know, I like I come from like a very anarchist punk rock background where I like just want to do cool things with my friends. And I want everyone to get what they need out of life and out of work. And we all do these things because we love them, not because we're like cashing in like huge checks. So it's very important for me to like be able to do things with people I care about and want to work with and get, you know, like a really cool relationship with them um, out of it, whether it's, you know, 
Fortunately, most of my customers I enjoy working with. I've learned what customers I don't enjoy working with. And I'm at a point where I try to not work with those people. I'm happy to turn people away if we're not if we're not going to be a good fit. Um, and fortunately, I don't draw that in very often. I do have like a very, very particular type of like person and bike that come to come my way. And now even like with it being yeah, for sure. being mountain bikes or track bikes or whatever, like there's a common common thread between the people that like I've built bikes for and that like even the higher level racers that I've you know built for or whatever, they're like still really into bikes because they're fun. Um, like it's never too serious. <laughs> um, and so, you know, custom bikes are expensive. They should work well. They should do what they're supposed to do. They should fit well. But like if it's a bike you're not going to have fun on, like I, I'm not building it. I like Eric Barr's philosophy with bikes. If it's not a speed machine, I'm not building it. <laughs> you know, that's like his requirement, right? Like he right. only builds hot rods. Right. <laughs> Which is so Eric. <laughs> it's yeah, it's so, so Eric. Yeah. Talk about Eric. another track nerd. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've spent a fair amount of time with Eric, like li- literally just watching him weld. And yeah, uh, very very like unique and amazing personality um in bikes it's certainly a favorite i've been very loud and official about yeah. that <laughs> yeah <laughs> eric's one of the first people i met at i think 2008 nabs in portland i went up just like to nerd out and we had like a mutual friend in common or something and i like stopped by the booth and he had his like bottle rocket launcher track bikes that were super (laughs) super amazing track bikes but you could also launch bottle rockets out of them (laughs) well it wasn't the blowtorch one right no he didn't have that bike that year i don't think yeah i mean like that's the thing it's not like bottle rockets was some one-off thing there was an evolution even there that was just the start (laughs) And the question that everybody gets asked at the end, because it's a very easy way of wrapping together an incoherent interview, if that's what we have. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. So the last question is, you're Megan Dean. People are massive Megan Dean enthusiasts. What do you tell the baby builder who wants to be a badass, super cool Megan Dean when they grow up? I I want them all to approach me and ask me for whatever help they need. I like am way more approachable than I know I come across. I do live in the middle of nowhere, so I I'm not physically very approachable for a lot of people. And I think some people should take on apprentices and I don't necessarily think I'm one of those people, but <laughs> but I like am always like super happy to help. And I think really like not being intimidated by the like barriers to entry is so key and just like kind of going for it is some of my best best advice and like frame building and anything like you can fuck up and redo you know start over like it's really not that big of a deal to like mess up all of your first five bikes or you know whatever like I'm lucky that I had some hand holding you know I, I like what Jackie's doing working with breadwinner and then working on her own is super amazing but like not everyone gets that chance if you have that opportunity like jump on it take for it sure <laughs> don't let it go I wish I had lived in a place that had frame builders that needed help um, or had wanted to move to somewhere like Portland uh, when I was looking for a new house every opportunity that comes up just take whatever you can get out of 
because as scary as like things seem like after you've completed your first like bike or four or whatever or your first suspension bike full suspension bike you kind of (laughs) realize that like fucking up is fine and you're gonna do it and like if you don't fuck up you'll never learn you'll never like you'll never get past starting if you're not willing to take the chances and mess up and scene that's all i got (laughs) wow megan that was insightful it's been such a pleasure speaking to you today thank you for taking the time thanks anna (laughs) wow good job good job (laughs) That's it for this series and the people around the Philadelphia Bike Expo and SRAM Frame Builder Inclusivity Scholarship. Thank you so much for listening. It's been so fun. If you want more interviews like this, hit the podcast link on Bike Rumor and let us know who you want to hear from. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's like the air in our tires. It's what keeps us rolling. Thanks for listening, friends. You are all diamonds. Stay dry.